Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. All right, Mark chapter 10, uh, 28. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give, for, to give his life a ransom for many. Now they came to Jericho, As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. Rise. He is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning now for... The precious gift of your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and we also thank you for the presence and work of your Holy Spirit. 
who speaks your word and applies your word and opens our eyes to your word, God. And so we just invite you here, God, to minister to us now as we turn our attention to learning from this passage we just read. Um, Our prayer is, God, that this would really just be an encounter between us and you, that, um, God, you would remove me and, and help me, enable me to serve you and the church well here in this moment. I just ask for your Holy Spirit, and we just ask, God, we, we ask this every week, and, and it's a sincere prayer. We just ask, God, that you would speak to us, minister to us in this time, and give us ears to hear what you want to say. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Well, as Kyle introed, and uh, just an awesome uh, ministry marriage duo up here. I love that. Even the handoff of the baby. Did you see that? That was awesome. Um, so we are right now five months into a journey through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is one of four biographies on the life of Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these Gospels, they complement each other while each kind of having their own distinct form of storytelling. Uh, Most uniquely, each gospel focuses on Jesus in a different, unique way. The same Jesus, but almost like a different way to look at him. Uh, The gospel of Mark is all about the life of Jesus. That's what Mark wants us to show us. If there was like a theme verse to the gospel of Mark, I think it would be the verse that Maddie read there, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Like, what was Jesus like? What did he do? How did he, how did he approach life? You know, the classic WWJD question. Like, or what did Jesus do? WDJD, all right? That's what we're answering. Um, that's what Mark is all about. It shows us the actions, the movements, the responses, and ultimately, the way of Jesus. That's what this series is entitled. Um, Christians are those who have sought and centered their lives around the way of Jesus, We just want to know his way and go his way. We don't want to assume the way of Jesus because I've been in church this long and I clearly know it by now. Or assume the way of God in some sort of presumptuous way to where we are actually not as familiar with who he is. We want to be those that come with humble hearts before Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us your way. Teach us your way. We come to you willing to learn. And so that's what Mark has been for us. Mark has been an opportunity to learn the way of Jesus. And each week, we're looking at a different aspect of the way of Jesus. And so, if you like to take notes, and even if you don't, go ahead and write this, this down as a title, all right? We're working from this idea here in Mark 10, from these verses we just read. We want to look back through this passage where we see the way Jesus answered. The way he answered. We've seen so many ways of Jesus, the way he enlightened, the way he responded, the way he received, the way he ministered. We've looked at so many aspects of Jesus. And I think this pretty well summarizes what we have here in this text. We have the way Jesus answered. That's what we see. We see in this passage Jesus, this is really interesting, answering and responding to humanity, which is just a beautiful general reminder about God himself. Jesus shows us what God is like. And this is something we see of God, even in the Old Testament. This is what God said to Israel in Jeremiah 33.3. They were in their captivity, and he's promising a day coming in their freedom that they can re-engage, that they can turn back to a relationship with God. And this is what God says to them. God wants them to be sure of this fact. He says, call to me, and I will. Not I might. Not if you're good enough, I'll hear. He just says, call to me, and I will answer you. 
What great hope there is to know that. I will respond and show you great and mighty things, things which right now you don't even know. It's going to blow your mind is what God is saying here. What an incredible promise and reminder about the God of this universe. He's a God who answers. He's a God who responds. And I think this is a helpful reminder, at least for me, because I can be, I don't know about you, I can be pretty one-sided in my understanding of God sometimes. I can be sort of one-sided or lean to one side more than the other in my relationship with him. And usually that side is like the side of God's up there and I need to respond to him, right? Like he's up there in the heavens. He's given me his book. I got to do the book, okay? Live life the book way and just respond to God and answer God. And let me say like that is true, okay? Like there is a truth to that. But we can forget sometimes that Walking with Jesus is not just what you do to respond to him. It's also, listen, him walking with you. He responds to you. I mean, that's a healthy relationship, isn't it? A a loving relationship looks like two people knowing each other and responding to each other. And so this is a helpful reminder. And this is something that God really wanted to, like, drive deep into the heart of his people. It's something that he's always trying to remind his people throughout history. And we have so many great reminders in Scripture Probably my favorite of this is the story between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. We know that one? We could call them the ballers for now because we don't know exactly how to pronounce that. But Elijah and these false prophets who were propagating their own uh, deity, their own false god, they come to do battle with Elijah. It was the first ever ball game. Hello. All right. It was an incredible... No more of that. Okay, I promise. Okay. It, It was this incredible contest that Elijah himself challenges them too. He goes, okay, let's see who the one true and living God is. And here's the contest. We each get an altar. And each altar is going to have some fire, and each altar is going to have a sacrifice. We each get a bull. In fact, he's like, you can even pick the better bull. We'll let you have the good bull. You get the good choice of meat. And what we're each going to do is take turns calling out to our gods. And whichever god sends fire upon the altar, whichever god, in other words, answers our call, it will validate who the one true and living God is. So they go, fine, let's do it. So they set up their altar, and they call out to their God. They, they, they go to such great measures to try to manipulate his attention. I mean, it's just, it's just um, secularism and even like uh, uh, um, the most true form of pagan religion, which is trying to appease the gods, trying to to make them happy enough, trying to get their attention by by being good enough. I mean, the Pharisees even did this. But they're going to great lengths. Like, they're cutting themselves. Like, I need to bleed to get God's attention. By the way, isn't the Christian gospel the exact opposite? God bleeds to get our attention. It's just just an incredible contrast. But as they cry out to their God, here's what happens. It goes right to voicemail, right? That's what we would say, okay? I called you, and you didn't answer. Went right, hi, this is Baal. I'm sorry, I'm away from the phone right now, but um, I'm also a false god and I don't exist. So uh, if you want to leave a voicemail, like, I mean, that's what's going on. And so this is so beautiful. Like, this is the, um, this is the response that Elijah says to them, okay? They took the bull, which was given to them. They prepared it. They call in the name of Baal from morning until, hello, almost fell off, until noon saying, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So there was no voice. And the key phrase there, right, is what? No one what? No one answered. There was no response. So Elijah comes along. And this is just some beautiful holy trash talk. 
that Elijah engages here. I love a good, biblically authorized trash talk, okay? And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Now he goes, now, I don't know where he is. Maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's out meditating. Maybe he's busy. Now, the Hebrew word there in some of your Bibles say relieving himself, a.k.a. maybe he's busy in the bathroom. He's going, he's going potty. Maybe that's why I can't hear you. Or maybe he's on a journey. You know, he doesn't have the data, that the international kind of thing on his phone plan, so he can't hear from me, okay? Or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Do you see the, the tone that Elijah is getting at here? He's reminding them, listen, any other God than the one true and living God is, is, is as, as worthwhile as trying to call someone who doesn't exist. They're not going to answer. And there's a beautiful contrast as Elijah then goes, okay, my turn. You know, the ball was in your court first. Hello. And now he's like, it's my turn. And now I'm going to respond. And he pours water all around the altar. He's like, I'll, I'll give you the advantage. I'll take the disadvantage. And we know what happens. The one true and living God responds. Listen to this, to a simple prayer from Elijah. He doesn't try to get God's attention by doing some crazy hillbilly dance. He doesn't, he doesn't, here's what he does. He goes, God, I'm your servant and you are Yahweh. Would you please prove yourself faithful? And he does. He does. And everyone goes, oh, he's the one true and living God. And what is the moral about God of the story? God answers people when they call to him. God is not off on some journey. In your life right now, no matter how far you've distanced from God, no matter how long it's been since you've given him a, given him a call, He's a God who answers, and he's present. And this is, this is the good news of the gospel. We don't just walk with him. He walks with us, and he responds to us. And Jesus shows us that here in the passage. But we saw again in this text, not just how we should answer and respond to God, but we see this great reminder that God responds to us. Like he knows what you're going through in life right now, and he has a response. He has an answer to your condition. Wherever you are and whatever you're going through. Uh, in this text, what we saw was three different circumstances that Jesus answered, okay? Three different circumstances that Jesus answered, and I think these can also apply to us today. We learn how Jesus answers things in our life as well. So let's go back through the text and see how Jesus answered. Three things. The first thing we saw was we saw, write this down, the way that Jesus answers our fear. How does God answer and respond to our fear? And the fear that's modeled here is in the lives of Jesus' own disciples. Jesus came to earth to lay down his life for the sins of humanity, to redeem a people back to God for all eternity. And part of his mission was to establish his church, which involved discipling or training and mentoring 12 ordinary dudes that nobody would have picked for the Jesus draft class. They would have been like, no, he's not, he's not even going to be you know, an undrafted pick. Like This guy's not even in the question. And Jesus picks these nobodies, and he wants to teach them to point to somebody and to serve him. And so he's training them, three years of that, of him getting away from even the crowds to invest in these few men. And, and the last pair, uh, passage we saw here, um, Jesus is, is he's in the mode right now. He knows he's leaving. And so most of his ministry to the disciples, because he knows he's going to give his life, is the ministry of preparation. Like, I'm going to be gone, and I'm not going to be right here. I'm going to teach you to rely on my Holy Spirit, and I'm going to have to give you and leave you some really key things 
that you're going to have to hold deep in your heart when I'm no longer here with you like I am now. He's preparing them. And as he's preparing them, it's the context here is really interesting. Remember the rich young ruler? We looked at him last week. He wasn't willing to lay aside his riches to receive the kingdom of God. He was unable to receive what God had for him because his hands weren't open and receptive. They were full of his own idols. And Jesus talks about how this man walks away sorrowfully. And we love Peter. Peter is, by the way, the guy who's telling the story that Mark is writing. Peter goes, Lord, see, we've left all to follow you. We're not like them. Now, unless we look on at Peter and just be like, Peter, you're such a self-confident cutie. Okay, Peter. All right. He's actually right. The disciples have left their source of income. They really have left everything to be his disciple. And Jesus affirms them. He says to them, and this is where their fear comes from. He says, assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brother or sisters or father or mother or wife or children, or lands for my sake in the Gospels. Jesus is saying there's going to come time in relationships where, where your relationship with God may cause conflict in your blood relationships here on earth. And following him may mean a sense of leaving behind what they want for you to follow Jesus. And Jesus goes, that's going to happen. And if that does, I want you to know no matter what happens to you, if that's you, I want to promise you that you're going to receive. It's going to be worth it. I'm going to take care of you. Whatever you've lost now, don't worry. It's an investment in heaven. And I'm going to pay it back. You're going to receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses. And he reminds them of, of some of the things they've gone through. You've lost houses, brothers and sisters, and mothers and children and lands. And then he, I love how he just subtly slides this in with persecutions. And in the age to come and eternal life. Now, Jesus has the disciples' minds spinning. Okay? They're like, Lord, we left all to follow you. And in their mind, they're like, we get to be, this is the king and we're his homies. This is going really good for us. Jesus is like, yeah, I want you to know no matter what you've sacrificed, you're going to be greatly rewarded in the kingdom, but I just want to remind you there is going to be sacrifice. There's going to be, use this word, persecution. Meaning you are going to suffer, not just emotionally, not just relationally, but you will even suffer maybe physically as you follow me. It's going to cost you. Now, notice the next verse, and this is where we picked up. Assuredly, I say to you, excuse me, wrong scripture, where's it at? Yep, I'm just still looking forward here. Oh, I found it. I did have the right one. Okay, uh, sorry. All right, so Jesus, now notice this. Matthew's version tells us that Jesus says more than just like, I'm going to pay back whatever you've lost. This is really interesting. Matthew's version includes an extra piece that Peter leaves out. Jesus also says this to them, like no matter what you're going to suffer and go through, he, said, he says, I say to you that in the, the regeneration, the, the end of the age, when God renews all things, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, check this out, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Like that's, now the disciples are like, cool. I'm really glad I left everything to follow you. I get to sit on a cool throne in heaven forever. You know? like, and this is a special honor he's giving to these these apostles, these who would be the, the foundation of the church. So, okay, this is the context. And then where we picked up in Mark, I have the right verse now. It tells us this, okay? It says, now they were on the road. Right after this happens, they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is going before them. So just put the scene in your head. They're journeying on foot, and there's Jesus out at, at front, as every good leader should be, going before those he's leading. And they're headed towards Jerusalem, where Jesus, we're going to look at, is going to be welcomed with praise and palm branches and adoration. 
But in a matter of time, when Jesus doesn't meet the expectations of the people, those that are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, are going to be saying, crucify him, crucify him. That's what's coming. Jesus knows this. He's going out ahead of the disciples. And as they're going, it says this. And I don't know if I found a more accurate depiction of my Christian life than what I see here in this passage. It says they were amazed. That's the first emotion. And then as they followed, they were afraid. Can we relate to that? It's like, I'm just so amazed at who God is half the time. And then the other half of the time, I'm just terrified of what's going on in my life and what's going to happen. Okay? I just love the, the honesty here of what it actually looks like to be a Christian. You don't have it all together. Okay? So, so, and I want you to think about the promises Jesus gave them. Suffering is going to come, but glory will follow. And so they're thinking about the glory part, and they're like, that's amazing. I'm amazed. Wow. They're thinking to themselves, like, sitting on thrones? Whoa. In a second, they're going to go wrong with it and ask for, like, special seats. We're going to see that. Okay. But they're, like, amazed. And they're like, wow, glory's coming. But wait a minute. Didn't he say persecution first? Now we're afraid. Okay. <laughs> it's such an interesting just spectrum of emotion, like David in the Psalms. Amazed at God, but afraid in life. <laughs> such a true expression of the human experience. As they followed, they were afraid. Remember this point. This, is, this point is about the way that Jesus answers our fear, right? How does Jesus answer the fear of the disciples? You ever felt this way in life? You're starting to project in your mind what the future may hold, especially as it pertains to being faithful to Jesus, and maybe you start to get afraid. You start to feel that. Just the uncertainty of what's going on in your life, how things are going to pan out, they're afraid. How does Jesus answer them? Notice this. It tells us that he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. This is really interesting. They come to him terrified and Jesus goes, I see you're scared. Let me tell you what I'm going to go through. Like it's, it, it's not the most encouraging thing that you would imagine. He, but he tells them this. He goes, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. Jesus is like, this is what's, what's awaiting us in Jerusalem, guys. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples are like, we're still scared. <laughs> in fact, now we just have more reason to be scared. Like, isn't it really interesting how Jesus responds to their fear? I want to point out a few things that he doesn't do. First of all, Jesus, in the face of fear, he doesn't offer us and he didn't offer them what we'll call blind optimism. Hey, every, don't be afraid. Why? Because every little thing is going to be all right. In fact, I'm just kidding about the suffering stuff. JK, gotcha. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm actually, I am going to establish political Israel at this time. <laughs> you little jokers, you know? He doesn't say that. He doesn't, wash, he doesn't wash over the reality of suffering. He doesn't, he doesn't offer them some kind of blind optimism, which like is interesting. I've seen, this is really popular in the church, I think because it sells and it fills seats. Hey, come to Jesus. You know what we have? We have a message. You know what the, we should go to that church. Why? Their message is this. Everything's going to be great. 
Everything in your life is going to be fine. In fact, the mo- it's fi- I found out that the more you give to the church, the better your life gets. That's what they're telling me. Maybe it's a business ploy, okay? I don't know. But genuinely, I'm serious. This, is, this has seeped into the theological framework of the American church. We have, we have these phrases, and I, I'm, d- just humor me for a second. In love, I'm going to speak some truth, okay? We have these phrases like, the best is yet to come. Now, we know that's true eternally. Isn't that good news? But if, we're, if we are, listen, if we are offering some sort of blind optimism that doesn't actually equip people for the sufferings that Jesus promised, and we're giving them, we're selling them some package deal that says, add Jesus, and you'll get wealthier. You'll get healthier. Everything will be better. The best is yet to come. Oh, you're having a hard, well, it's not next week yet. Next week, next week is when everything gets better. Jesus doesn't offer a sense of blind optimism. He, he doesn't act like things won't be as hard as they are. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, my dad has a, a longtime friend that was like a family friend uh, that I grew up knowing. His name is Mo. Okay, he's one of my dad's good friends, all the way from what elementary, middle school, dad. So they were Brooklyn boys together. All right, my dad and Mo. And growing up, Mo was always like my dad's right-hand man. They were always everywhere they went. And Mo is a character, by the way. He is the, the most hilarious individual ever. We're praying for Mo to come to know the Lord. Uh, Mo has recently, little Brooklyn dude, lives in Puerto Rico now. Mo's in Puerto Rico, was in Brooklyn. Now, Mo, in case you're wondering, Mo's in Puerto Rico, okay? And Mo, his nickname in Puerto Rico, I guess because of the car he drives, is Mo Jaguar. That's his name, Mo Jaguar. That's a real person, Okay. Mo Jaguar. I remember one time I, I was a youth pastor, and I brought, I brought a bunch of high school kids. Uh, we, we were doing some sort of outreach or something, and they were at my house, and Mo was there. And Mo was like, ah, oh, Andrew's a youth pastor now, you know. Let me teach these kids. Come here. You, you, want, you want wisdom? Get over here. So he calls. These kids are all like, all right, Mo Jaguar here. You know, and they're, and I, it's been 15 years, and I haven't forget, forgotten the quote that Mo, that Mo said. Here's a real quote from Mo Jaguar. Mo, Mo circles the kids in front of them, and I, I think he came up with this on the spot. It's the most genius thing I've ever heard. He goes, life, there's always something better around the corner. Maybe. <laughs> Out of the mouths of Mo's, right? Is this trial going to turn out the way that I'm hoping it to? I don't know. Is life in Jesus going to be as simple and and easy as it's often sold to be? Like, no. I don't want you to be T-boned by your trial and then have your whole theology thrown upside down. Are you with me? You know, there's a great story in Acts where Acts, uh, in Acts, um, the disciples, uh, Paul's preaching the gospel and making many disciples, he returns to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and he comes back, and here's, Paul's going to come and encourage the churches. Okay, so if Paul, it's like, hey, we have a guest speaker this morning, it's the Apostle Paul, you might have heard of him, really great, a lot of books, mostly in the Bible, and he's going to come preach, and here, here's Paul's message. Paul comes, and he strengthens the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That's his sermon. Like, this is it. Jesus doesn't offer us anything else. He's like, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to give you the real thing. 
In this world, you will have tribulation. The Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, and he's going to give his life up. And disciples, if you follow me and you're faithful to me, you're going to give your lives up as well. Peter's going to be crucified upside down. Andrew's going to be crucified on an X-shaped cross. John is going to be boiled alive and, boiled alive and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Thomas is going to be sewn in, sawn in two. He's going to give his life. They're going to experience this suffering at the hand of Jesus. Jesus is not going to sugarcoat the reality of evil in this world and the consequences of following Jesus. He doesn't offer them blind optimism. But lest we leave here with our heads down, let me also remind you that Jesus doesn't offer fatal pessimism. Jesus goes, I know that sounds bad. I know that's difficult. But I have good news for you. See, here's the truth of the matter. Suffering is unavoidable. You're going you're gonna to suffer following Jesus or not. In some ways, Jesus says you're going to suffer more persecution if you follow me. So it's going to be a little harder. But there's not a fatal pessimism in this. When you face suffering, when you face hardship, though it's a reality, Jesus would say it's not the ultimate reality and it's not the final reality. Whatever the suffering is that you're facing, whatever the persecution is that you're facing, here's what Jesus offers to the disciples in the face of their fear. He offers hope, <laughs> what we all really need in the face of suffering. Not hope that everything is going to work out now. That, that's not always the promise. But he's got something a little bit more lasting, a little bit more enduring. He offers hope that's directly tied to who he is. He's like, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he says, I love this, this is the first thing of hope, he says, he says, when we get there, I love that, it's kind of like this message of like, we're all in this together, but this is the first sign of his hope, the, the promise that he's making to them is, you're not doing this alone, I'm with you, I mean, this is his hope, the fact that Jesus is with us, no matter what we walk through, is our greatest hope, not that your life goes well, or it goes bad, the question is, is Jesus in your boat? I mean, this is what he really wanted to get across when he was departing. He's like, go into all the world, make disciples, and just know one thing. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But listen, in the face of all that you're afraid of, recognize my presence with you. And here's the good news. If I'm with you, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I'm going to, I'm going to see you through it. I'm with you. This is what Jesus says in Mark. I'm sorry, in Matthew. In Matthew. It's actually Matthew. I lost it too. This is going awesome. Hold on. This is my, this is my worst fear, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> it's all right. He says a lot of great things. Okay. <laughs> that first assurance is he's with you. I want to point out one more thing here, then we'll move on. Okay. The other thing I want you to, want you to notice here is how Jesus affirms the fact that not only is he going to be with them, but he also tells them, I, I really love this, he, the hope he offers is he goes, I'm going to go before you. I think that's really cool to see that. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's with his disciples, and this is true leadership. Okay, um, bad leadership would be Jesus sending his disciples before him. Like, you go ahead of me, right? This is a true leader. Like, I'm going to lead in self-sacrifice. I'm going before you. But also, what a theological reminder that God goes before his people, doesn't he? He's before all things, in him all things consist. This is one of his biggest promises he gave to Israel. Like, I, I'm with you, I'm around you, and I go 
before you. Whatever you're walking through right now, whatever you'll walk through next week, whatever suffering you face, it will never catch God off guard. He's already been there. He knows. He's sovereign. And that's, like, that's an encouragement to us. There's nothing that he's like, oh, I, di- I didn't actually come before you for this one. I did the other ones, but I didn't. Ooh, this is a tough one. I don't know if we're going to make it. No, he's faithful to always go before us. And then our hope also in the end is this incredible hope that he offers this eternal life to us who follow him. He's going to die, but he's also going to resurrect in power. Incredible hope that he offers his people. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. I am with you. I go before you. And I prepare a place for you. No matter what you endure in this world, it's going to be worth it. In the end, here's what you'll say. The sufferings of this world are nothing compared to the glory that's to come. We've got to latch on to that like we believe it. This is hard, Jesus, but you're with me. So I'll get through this. This is hard, Jesus, but you go before me. I didn't get here first. You did. This is hard, Jesus, but I know what's coming. I know the best is yet to come in you eternally. I know I can hope in that. I just also want to say this, and this is just my, my exhortation to us. Can we just acknowledge the disciples? One thing that I appreciate about them is they were afraid, right? But they still followed. Isn't that sweet? Like, you know, the Bible does give clear encouragements about not fearing, like, don't fear. It's one of the most consistent, uh, most emphasized commands in the Bible. God's saying to his people, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't do it. Don't fear. But I wonder if what God is meaning when he often says that is not just don't feel afraid. Of course, that's, that's what we, we don't want to feel fear. We want to feel faith. But, but come on, who can honestly control when they feel fear? Do you have that ability? Is there like a nozzle you have? I haven't figured that out yet. I found that, that I don't so much step into fear as much as sometimes fear just steps into me. And I'm just like, I wasn't planning on being afraid right now. I just kind of, it's like it just rains on you. You ever felt that? You know what I'm talking about? Like fear just comes. Do not be afraid. I think it means a lot like what we see with the disciples. Don't let fear determine who you are and what you do. You're afraid? That's okay. Keep following. I mean, what an encouragement. You're going to feel afraid. It's not going to make sense. The question isn't if you'll feel fear. The question is, will fear drive your feet? Will will fear steer your life? Will fear keep you from following Jesus? That's how Jesus answers our fear. Second point, we're going to get right through this. It's going to be a great day, okay? Don't be afraid. Okay. I don't know what that meant. Sorry. The next thing we see in this passage, and it, it builds beautifully. The disciples are just great examples for us here um, of what not to do. And so uh, first we saw the way that Jesus answers our fear. And I made up a word here, so bear with me. I think we know what it means. But next we see the way Jesus answers our selfness. Okay, so I mean selfishness could have worked, but I just didn't feel like it was right. This is, this is selfishness without the ish, okay? It's self Okay, it's it's just all you ever have any self problems in your life? You know what I'm talking about? Just the self, how the self gets the self life gets in the way of your spiritual life. Well, uh, that's the the next thing we see here in this passage. Uh, This is one of Jesus's most consistent message uh, messages to his followers and those that want to follow him. There's three enemies that you're going to face in life. There's a real spiritual enemy called the devil in scripture who has an army of, of spiritual forces that work against God's purposes in our lives. 
There's a system of the world that works like a current trying to steer us away from God. And then there's you and me. It's the flesh, right? The self life. Me. Okay? There's, there's definitely times to, to blame things on the devil. And them, you know, the world, the system of the world. But, you know, as judgment begins in the house of God, that should all follow the recognition of how self can get in the way of God's purposes, right? How self can take center stage. Jesus is, it's interesting, you know, in our culture, in our culture, the solution to all your problems is more of yourself. You need to love, your, your problem is you're not loving yourself enough. Self-love, love more. Love more. Now, I just want to say, like, if the issue for you is a matter of self-worth, okay, the best source for that is in knowing who you are as made in the image of God. That's where your worth and value comes from. Like, there's no, like, in fact, if there's not a creator God who made you in his image, like, the logical train of thought is, like, what worth do we have to give ourselves? I guess in what we can contribute to, you know what I'm saying? Like, truth, true philosophical thinking will lead us to go, Worth has to come somewhere else. Someone's got to give me my worth, and that's what the Bible teaches. That's what God says, that you were created by God in his image. He made you. He loves you. He knows you. You have worth. Um, but the Bible doesn't say that the more you love yourself, the better your life will be. That's not the solution. In fact, in Scripture, the issue, or, or rather the solution isn't self-worth or self-love, the solution isn't self-love. That's usually the problem, actually. Like, one of the biggest problems in my life is how much I love myself. So Jesus is like, hey, I want you to love others as much as you love yourself. Like, that's, love your neighbor as yourself. The assumption there is you like yourself, okay? You wake up not thinking about them. You wake up thinking about you. you you're, it's, your whole life is about me, my needs, nourishing, self-love. I mean, humans are driven towards self-centeredness. I mean, just the nature of it. And Jesus is like, that's the problem. And Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, what he's got to do is deny himself. You've got to learn to crucify the self-life. To, to not let self rule, but to rule over self by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see this with the disciples. They have some selfness all up in the business. We, we know the story. They come to Jesus. What a prayer. Okay, here is, here is imagine approaching Jesus with this sentence. Teacher. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Master. Lord. Okay. So we'll call this self-centeredness, right? They are at the... So, so in this, this spiritual life, um, the, the Bible teaches us... Let me back up. The Bible teaches us as Christians to approach God with a heart that says, let your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, the scriptures, this is really cool, the scriptures teach us what that will is. The best prayers to pray are Bible prayers. Okay, if, if you want to pray prayers that get answered every time, like in terms of what Jesus says, asking you will receive, pray God's will. If you pray for God's will to be done and God's kingdom to come as it is, it is revealed in his word, Jesus says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man will avail much. There will be a result of that. That's how we're called to pray. We're, we're we're, we're the servants of God. He's the king. And we bring our requests to God in submission to 
His will. And the center of our life is not what we want, but what He wants. That's huge. The center of our life is not what we want you to do, but what you know is best. And the disciples come at the opposite. A self-centered spiritual life has what I want at the center of it. My will. It's a whole study on that. Like our will and our wants versus God's will. And we can come to God and almost, it's like we're doing battle with him. And we say, God, we want, this is interesting. We want you to do whatever we want. Whatever we ask. So when your desires are at the center of your spiritual life, you actually end up treating Jesus, who's your Lord, as your servant. That's what we do. And we say, God, you're just a vessel to my own pleasures and my own desires. But like, at first, guys, back up and say, like, any good parent knows that one of the best ways to love your kids is to not give them what they're asking for, right? Dad, I'm nine years old now. Can I drive your car? It's like, no, okay. Why, you don't love me? No, okay. I love everyone, okay? And we want to save their lives. So, and yours. We want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus responds. Now, I don't think he's like putting it out there like, come on, whatever you want. He's going, well, what do, what do you want me to do for you? You know, here I am at your bidding. What, what do you want me to do for you? And the disciples, they go from self-centeredness to what we'll call self-concern. They say, Jesus, remember you talked about that whole throne thing? That sounds really great. We're really looking forward to it. Just wondering, like, is the right and left seat taken yet? I'm just curious. In fact, Matthew tells us that they're so ashamed of asking this question themselves, they actually send their mom to do the dirty work. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Go ask Jesus if we can get the best seats in the house of heaven. <laughs> Grant us, Jesus, that we may sit on your right hand and the other on the left in your Glory. The other disciples are looking on like, really, guys? Like, so you're, and this is self-concern, right? Paul calls us out of this. He's like, don't look out for your own interests, the interests of others. When they're saying, give us first and second, they're like, it's at the expense of everyone else, right? A few verses ago, Jesus said that those who desire to be first will be last. The disciples are just, they're amazed and afraid. They're just not getting it. Jesus, give us the best seats in the house. So they go from self-centeredness to self-concern at the expense of others. Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking for. This is what he says to them. You don't know what you're asking for. Because in the kingdom, the greatest glory comes from the greatest suffering. That's what Jesus is saying. The, the, the greater the suffering, the higher the glory. The greater the humility, the higher the exaltation. This is the, the system of heaven. So Jesus is like... You're asking me to sit on the right and left, the seat of honor in heaven, the seat of glory next to me. What you're asking me is for more suffering here on earth. That's what you're asking for. Now, I'm going to prepare you for that life. But you don't know what you're asking me. And then he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, in their minds, they're probably thinking of the cup of royalty. He's the king. And they're thinking probably of his baptism in the water in Mark 1. They're like... Yeah, I can drink a royal cup, and uh, I can get water baptized. But Jesus isn't referring to that. Here, Jesus is speaking of the cup of his suffering and the baptism of his death that's to come. Remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, if it be your will, what? Let this cup pass from me. Jesus is the ultimate cupbearer who tastes death for us to save us. 
Jesus goes, you don't know the cup I'm about to drink. The baptism I'm going to be baptized with is a baptism of, the first was a baptism of life. This is a baptism of death. I'm going to take upon myself the sins of the whole world. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink this cup? Are you able to be baptized with this? And the disciples who are self-centered, self-concerned, they now become self-confident. And they say, we are able, Lord. We're able. Yeah, God. Yeah, we can do it. Yeah, Lord, we left all to follow you. We can drink a cup and be baptized. God, okay? We, now, there's just, this is just, it just bleeds with self-confidence, an unhealthy form of it. A self-confidence that thinks that I have enough in and of myself to get across the finish line. And um, one of the lessons that we learn from the disciples with these self-confident statements, Peter has another one where he's like, you know, um, I'll never deny you. Thomas is the one that says, Lord, I'll die with you. And they all end up scattering. Remember that? And so there's, this is kind of the theme of the disciples, and it can be true of our lives as well, that we tend to underestimate our inability in and of ourselves to endure under real pressure. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we think we're a lot more capable and persevering than we really tend to be. And so we should just get that out of here in the beginning and just fall right at the feet of Jesus, right? Right in the, right in the start of things. But there's self-confidence. And Jesus says to them, here's what Jesus says. He goes, well, it's interesting you say that, that you're able I don't believe you're able to in your own strength, but you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. As I mentioned, the disciples will be martyred for their faith. Just as Jesus is crucified, they too will suffer. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. He's like, yeah, that is in your future. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those to whom it's prepared. That's up to the Father to promote. That's, that's the job of the Father. And just a great reminder, like, don't seek the place of honor. The Bible says that. Proverbs, like, don't be the one speaking your own name of how awesome you are, seeking the best seat. L- listen, promotion comes from the Lord. Let him take care of you. You just be faithful to serve Jesus and watch what he does. Amen? It's a little extra, okay? But notice this. this is, isn't this ring true? When the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. And, and if you've served on some kind of team before where someone's self-centered motive came out, you ever been there where you're like, oh, we're a team, but they just betrayed the team dynamic because it was all about them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this has ever happened to you? This happened to me. And, it's, it, and it, it will, like, it will ruin a team. And here they are, and they're displeased. They're like... I can't believe that you're seeking glory and honor at the expense of the team, at the expense of us. And they're displeased, as we all would be, just disappointed. But I love this. They're displeased, but Jesus, I love Jesus. When we blow it, not if, but when we're self-centered, when we're self-confident, when we're self-concerned, Jesus doesn't sit off with the disciples like all displeased, like, you know better. He doesn't do that. He makes it a teaching moment. He does this with all of us. He's like, come closer. Let's learn something here. He calls them to himself and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles in this culture, you know, you know the modern day leader, they, they lord their leadership over those that they're leading. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus goes, but, but it shouldn't be that way with you, okay? This is not how this is going to work. Jesus is not just preparing his disciples for his departure. He's preparing these homies to lead the church. I mean, these guys are, the, they're going to rule the church, and not in a, in a self-centered way, obviously, but in a leadership way. 
They're going to be the apostles. These are going to be the ones that's going to take the mission of the church forward. So Jesus is like, I've got to tailor make some leaders here that aren't formed by the leadership structures of culture and aren't formed by the mindset of the world, but they're formed by the way of Jesus. And the leadership way of Jesus is not, how can I leverage what I have for my own selfish gain in leadership? The way of Jesus is, I use my platform to serve and bring value to others. That's the way of Jesus. Not, how can these people bring value to me? Opportunistic thinking. But servant-minded thinking is, how can I use what I've been given to serve others? We see that? It's the way of Jesus, the way of leadership of the kingdom. And I think it's really interesting because Jesus is like, you have to watch out for how culture is shaping your mindset of leadership. There's a way that the world leads. And don't underestimate your tendency to get swayed into how the world leads and to think how the world thinks. There's a way that the world does it. There's a way that Jesus does it. And whoever of you desires to be first, the goal is that you're a servant. We're servants. And we talked about this last chapter. That's where real significance is found, is in not how high you can climb, but how low you can go in the kingdom. That's servanthood. For, and Jesus is, is the great leader who models, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus answers their fears. He answers their selfness. And as we transition to our close here, we, we close with this last one. Jesus answers our cry. That was beautifully timed. That's a dedicated baby right there. <laughs> Jesus answers our fears with real hope, not blind optimism, nor fatal pessimism, real hope. Jesus answers our selfness with the way of his kingdom, which is the way of servanthood and self-denial, not selfish gain, but self-sacrifice. And all of this sets up a context to an incredible moment here where Jesus answers one of the most significant cries we've seen in Scripture. Um, if you haven't yet, you will need to cry out to God in your life. You will need to. Life will warrant, if you're honest, life will warrant that you lose the control and you cry out to God. Life will warrant that. Um, so this man is a lot more relevant to us than we may think he is. It tells us that they then come to Jericho. This isn't the walls of Jericho, VeggieTales wall, okay? This is a city just north of Jerusalem. And Jesus comes out of Ger uh, Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. So there's just masses following Jesus and his disciples. And we meet a man who you may have heard before, blind, Bartimaeus, he's the son of Timaeus. This is literary redundancy. I don't know why Mark mentions it, but Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. And Mark's like, there's going to be some Boca Ratonians reading this in 2022. We got to make sure they know what's going on here, okay? But there's this man, and this is really beautiful because most of the individuals who cry out to Jesus and are healed by him, they aren't named like this. This is what's really sweet here. This man's name is Bartimaeus. He's the son of Timaeus. And, and he is outside of Jericho. There's, there's, there's a really um, busy traffic way leading out of Jericho towards Jerusalem that this man was, was, was there sitting. And he's sitting there as a beggar. He's the son of Timaeus. It says he sat by the road begging. This was his custom. The idea is, uh, there is that this is what he does. Um, you, and I've, like, I feel like this in, in the community here. There are, 
there are some homeless people that some I've developed a relationship with that are like, you ever, like they're like living landmarks in the area. It's just kind of where they are and you know they're there and you want to help them as much as you can. But Bartimaeus, he was known by everybody. Like he was that living landmark on that road out of Jericho. And his whole life he's there. And, he's, and again, he's blind and he's there begging. So he, he has no ability to provide for himself. He has no resources in and of himself. He, he is, this is really important, Bartimaeus lives at the mercy of other people. He lives at the mercy of other people who are willing to give him a little something. He, he, what he would do is he'd, wear, he'd take off his outer garment and he would lay it on the floor and people would come by and they'd put coins in his garment and, and he would you know, pick it up afterwards and get a sense of how much was there. And this is his life. Blind Bartimaeus is there. This is all he's known. He can't see, but it's a good thing faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God because he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. He's heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe in his mind, he's like, man, I'll never really be able to see the things that Jesus does, but man, I have heard about Jesus. I heard about a couple blind people who got healed by him. No other miracle worker has done that in history, and, and all the prophets pointed to the one that would come to open blind eyes. And, and so you just see the desperation of this man. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, who, who was the reason for the hustle and bustle of the crowd, he began to cry out. There's emotion in his voice. There's desperation in his voice. There's longing in his voice. He cries out. He says, this is so beautiful. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is one of the most theological prayer requests in the whole Bible. Son of David, th this man, Bartimaeus, he's never read the Bible, but he's heard about the king, the Messiah that would come through the line of David. 2 Samuel 7, who's established throne will have no end. He knows that David's going to have a son who's going to be David's own king and Lord. And so he, he knows what God has said. He's heard the truth about God. And that truth is enough in his ears to display faith. And, he, and this is just, again, beautiful. He cries out for the mercy of Jesus. His whole life he's been dependent on the mercy of people. But now he's shifting to being dependent on the mercy of Jesus. Many warn him to be quiet. They're used to this guy crying out for money. They're used to this guy being an annoyance. And now they're thinking, oh my gosh, he's going he's gonna to get you know, Jesus on edge. We don't want Jesus on edge. We want him to preach and teach and heal us. But notice as they try to silence him, the attempts at silence is what turned his volume up. He cries out all the more. Like, you, you have here displayed in a person who so models desperation for Jesus that they don't care what people think. Because I'm not at your mercy. I'm at the mercy of God. I don't care what you think. You're telling me to be quiet? I'll just cry out louder. I don't need you. I need him. What beautiful desperation. Have mercy on me, son of David. Sometimes you have to persevere with your cry. So I've had this happen where people go, hey, you know, Andrew, you told me to really cry out to God with my thing, and I did, and I didn't hear anything. Well, maybe you're not desperate enough yet. <laughs> Keep crying out. Get louder. Come before him more boldly. Come before him more unashamedly. Come, come, listen, come before him and don't appeal to what you've earned from him because you've been good enough, but come before him on the basis of his mercy. 
What a contrast from the disciples, right? Jesus, we want you to do for whatever we ask. We're your disciples. We've been with you this long. We've left all to follow you. Give us good seats. They're coming to Jesus on the basis of their merit. They're coming to Jesus leveraging some, it's entitlement. Do you know what I'm saying? And this man's coming to Jesus and they're just like, they're nothing compared to this man who's coming and he's just throwing himself at the mercy of God. There's something about prayer that appeals to the mercy of God. We just want your mercy, God, please. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. Think of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Be merciful to me, a sinner, God. The Bible tells us that, and this is so great, he got Jesus' attention. Jesus answers when we cry. When we cry out to him, he stood still and he commanded him to be called. Then he called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. This appeal to the mercy of Jesus, it got his attention. He, he turns, he, there's crowds everywhere, and this one person has his attention. And this is so amazing. He's called to Jesus, and what does he do? He throw, Mark tells us, this is an important note, that he throws aside his garment. Remember what we said about his garment? That's where he collected money from. He, what he's saying is, I, I'm no longer at the mercy of anyone but Jesus. I don't need this anymore. I'm going to Jesus. He rose and he came to Jesus. And Jesus, what did he do? He answered. He always answers. Maybe not always the way we want, how we want, or maybe he doesn't answer with what we want him to say. But he answers. Now, do you notice this question? What do you want me to do for you? This is the same question he asked his disciples. What a contrast, though. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni. The picture there is of intimacy, like you're my rabbi, you're my teacher, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight, and he followed Jesus on the road. I just want to remind you today, I don't know how long you've been crying out. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you have fought the urge to cry out because you're trying to hold it together. But can I just encourage you with the simple fact that when you come to Jesus, you have his attention. And he's looking upon what you're going through. He's gone before you. And as you cry out to him, especially on the basis of his mercy, he's faithful to answer you. This is what David says in Psalm 18. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried out to my God and he heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. This is um, all the great revivals of history. Um, Charles Finney talks about this in his book, Lectures on the Revivals of Religion. And he says this, that every great revival of history is marked usually by a few things, but if we could pin it down to one central thing, every great move of God in history where God shows up in response to people, it, it, it's usually in the context where um, men and women are praying and crying out to God with the certainty that he hears them. There's something to prayer that's aware of God's listening ear. There's something to a cry that doesn't care what other people think, but is just dependent on God and his presence and his faithfulness that will transform not just our lives, but our church and the world around us. This is um, who Jesus is. 